Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. Thank you for tuning in today. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Pamela Nadell, the Patrick Clendenin Chair in Women's and Gender History at American University's Department of History. Dr. Nadell also directs the Jewish Studies Program at American University and serves as the chair of its Critical Race, Gender, and Culture Studies Program. Dr. Nadell is the author of America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today, published this year by W.W. Norton. Today, we'll be discussing this book, which highlights the stories of various important Jewish women in American history, including the poet Emma Lazarus and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Dr. Nadell is also the author of Women Who Would Be Rabbis, A History of Women's Ordination, 1889-1985, which was a finalist for a National Jewish Book Award. Pam, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Why did you write the book? One of the stories I tell is that I spent a lot of time looking at the photographs of my family, and I have photos of my great-grandmother, and my grandmother, and my mother, and I was interested in how the clothing of theirs changed over the generations, and that led me to questions about how their lives had changed, and that drew me into this story. Um, what was it like, before we get to what was life on the frontier like, what was it like in colonial America? There were a string of, of Jewish communities along the, the eastern seaboard. Um, what, what was it like for Jews, and what was it like for women uh, who were Jewish at that time? So we're looking at very small Jewish communities that were very much on the frontier because the colonies were the frontier. They were Jews who came from all sorts of different places. Um, there were Ashkenazic Jews and Sephardic Jews. We have this false myth that they were mostly Sephardic Jews. And there were the, the Jewish women in the colonial world were very much a part of the women of the American colonies, and yet they also stood apart from them. So, for example, they go to synagogue, when, whereas because they went to synagogue because Christian women went to church, so the Jewish women go to synagogue. But at the same time, they were trying to observe um, Jewish tradition and Jewish law. What did Jewish women at, at that time, they weren't in business, were they? Were they, they, had, they had some skills, yeah. um, but what, what was their day like? Um, so what their day was like very much depended on how much money they had. They had a lot of money. They had servants or slaves to help them in the house. If they didn't have a lot of money, then um, they had to do all of this labor themselves. So think about what it would take just to do laundry, to haul it down to the river maybe, or to bring it into a kettle on, on the stovetop and to wash it out and wring it out and then dry it and then prepare it. They had to prepare all the foods, make the candles, make the uh, all, all the various foodstuffs that they needed to eat. But by the same token, they're constrained. The Jewish women were constrained very much by Jewish tradition and Jewish law. So there's a moment where a colonial woman named Teddy Hayes has bought some meat that she suspects has not been koshered properly, not slaughtered properly properly, um, and this is in New York, and the synagogue's council investigates, and they don't find enough evidence to accuse the shachet of having done anything wrong, but they tell her she has to re-kosher her, and that's the word phrase they use, re-kosher her house. Imagine what it was like to re-kosher her house when you don't have running water, and uh, whatever method that she would have used. So their, their days were spent in providing for their families. 
By the early 1800s, you uh, write that women founded the Female Hebrew Benevolence Society. Why was that important? That was critical. And um, The first one was founded in Philadelphia, but soon there were others founded in other cities. It was critical because it's a moment of transition where Jewish women begin to organize themselves outside of the synagogue to help the Jewish poor who are coming into the country. Earlier in Philadelphia, the women who were the founders of the Female Hebrew Benevolence Society had founded, had been joined with Christian women in founding a benevolent society to help the poor coming into Philadelphia. But they discovered that the Christian women missionized. And so that was a problem for them. So they created a society specifically for the Jewish poor. So it's an expansion of women's role. Uh, we think about Hebrew school. Many of us have, have been to Hebrew school. <laughs> Some uh, of us taught it. <laughs> uh, yes, I, actually, I did myself. Um, uh, what prompted women to invent the Hebrew Sunday school? You talk about that in the book. The, some of the same women who were involved with the Female Hebrew Benevolent Society created the first Hebrew Sunday school in America. And it was an idea that really caught on. And it was very much along the same lines, and that is that there were Christian missionaries who reached out to the poor children in their communities. Sunday was the one day that they weren't working. They brought them into the schools. They gave them something hot to eat. They gave them a, a place to shelter away from the snow and the rain, And but they were preaching Christianity. So the Hebrew Sunday School becomes a place where women teach Jewish children, the poor children of their communities, what it meant to be a Jew, the kinds of basic prayers that they needed to know. But it also became a remarkable avenue because the best graduates of the schools went back in and were the teachers in the next years. Tell us about the prayer book for maidens and wives. Oh, the prayer book for maidens and wives is the first of an example of uh, a type of literature that has existed in Jewish communities all over the world. And we, it's what we call prescriptive literature. It's literature written by men telling women how they should behave. And this becomes one of the first examples in the United States of that. Now, where, where did that, where was it written? Where was it published? Where? I'm pretty sure that one was published in New York, that it was a, a New York, I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure a New York rabbi um, wrote that. And it's also part of, there. there's an expansion of women's roles in what we would think of as Orthodox Judaism that's also happening in the 19th century. So it's part of that, and because it's, it's saying one of your proper functions is to join these female Hebrew benevolent societies, or during the Civil War, to help the soldiers during the Civil War. So it is, it's allowing women to take their domestic roles of nursing the sick, feeding um, their families, and taking that outside of their homes into the public sphere. And what year was that? Uh, what, what period are we talking we're, about? We're talking, so the, the Female Hebrew Benevolent Society, the first one was 1819. So we're talking about the decades before the Civil War, and that kind of energy and activism increases after the Civil War. So German Jewish immigrants, Central European immigrants coming in in the 1840s. Right. Um, they're settling, of course, in the, in the cities that we know, again, the Northeast. Um, uh, but now moving towards the Midwest and some uh, in, in the far Midwest and into the, into the Rockies, um, what, what was life like for Jewish immigrants in that part of the country as, as they settled in the West? And what uh, 
particular or special issues did Jewish women have to deal with uh, as they moved to to, uh, to those places? Right, as they moved to these new communities. Um, the the Jewish women who moved to the frontier towns, so, you know, at one time Cincinnati was a frontier town, St. Louis was a frontier town. The, the Jewish women who moved there, first of all, um, most of them who end up there, they came married because men came, Jewish men came from Central Europe to America first, and they started out as peddlers. But once a peddler got sufficiently successful and wanted to open up a store, it takes two to man a store. Somebody's got to be behind the counter. Somebody else has to be out acquiring the goods. So they w- that would be the point where the Jewish peddler would decide that he needed to get married. And he would either um, uh, put his capital someplace and go east, maybe to New York, one of the big cities. Um, he would hear a cousin had come over, and he would he would get married, and then he would bring her back, and they would she would help in the business originally. So for many of those Jewish women, the Central European Jewish women who came over, they were actually involved in the family economy originally. The better off ones and those who became very well-to-do quickly left that role behind, and then they were primarily in the domestic sphere. Jewish women who didn't marry, what was their situation? Often, and this is something that we find so striking in American history, is that especially in the 19th century in the first half of the 20th, women who did not marry had an unusual kind of freedom that they would never have had otherwise. That they, for example, the founder of the Female Hebrew Benevolent Society, the founder of the Hebrew Sunday School was Rebecca Gratz. Rebecca Gratz never married. When we think of Hadassah, a later organization, the founder of that organization, Henrietta Zold, never married. Women who didn't marry were able to serve their communities in ways that we that we might find surprising. That doesn't mean they didn't have domestic responsibilities. Rebecca Gratz raised her nieces and nephews after one of her sisters died in childbirth. You, um, you write about the Jewish Denominational Congress of 1893, mm-hmm. um, of which uh, the leader, Hannah Solomon, stormed out when it seems like a bait and switch where there were uh, no women on right. the program. She then uh, created and led a very popular separate conference. Uh, was this the, a, a turning point for Jewish women's voices, um, since it did lead to the creation of uh, the National Council of Jewish Women? I, the What's interesting to, to see is kind of in the broad perspective is that 1893 World Columbian Exposition, the Great World's Fair in Chicago, was a turning point in American women's history. Hundreds, if not thousands of new organizations came out as a result of that um, uh, grand uh, uh, meeting. And the reason that happened is that um, there were a number of groups in Chicago, including the Chicago Women's Club, and they were very adamant that women would be equal participants in the various conventions. They were called congresses, but we would call them conventions that were held at the Congress. So the number of women speaking in public on display about all sorts of different topics at the Congress, at, at the World's um at the World's Columbian Exposition, as well as the, the, there was an entire woman's pavilion, was just extraordinary. And the National Council of Jewish Women grew out of that. Hannah Solomon's Jewish Women's Congress um, was held independent of the men who organized the Jewish Denominational Congress. Um, it was so packed that they sometimes had to repeat certain sessions because um, they couldn't get everybody in the room who wanted to hear. And in the end, they founded one of what I call the powerhouse Jewish women's organizations, the National Council of Jewish Women, that still exists today. 
So you note that by the, the late 1890s, uh, women marched down three paths, charity and philanthropy, synagogue, and Zionism. You mentioned Henrietta Zold, and I'd like to hear more about that. Um, now, uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, millions of Jews over a certain period of time, but hundreds of thousands of Jews are, are entering the United States. Um, so how did these three paths uh, affect uh, or impact the new 20th century? In, in dramatic ways. Um, first thing that happens is that I, 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 I use this model of these three paths because I'm looking at what Christian women were doing. And the, the Jewish women who create these charitable organizations are the ones who are trying to sustain the, the wave of East European immigrants who are coming into America. Um, the synagogue sisterhoods those are powerhouse organizations that still exist today. They had different names um, when they were first founded in the second decade of the 20th century, but, they, but they're still the same organizations. They have different um, uh, goals today. And the Zionist organization, of course, the Zionism, Jewish women's Zionism, um, has been a powerful factor well into the 21st century. Now, you, um, you note that uh, even before women in the United States could vote, uh, Jewish women had a, a, a large political voice, um, and uh, which brought them out into the streets. Uh, tell us about that. They, they literally went into the streets um, early on in May of 1902. They went into the streets when the price of kosher meat in New York City soared from 12 cents a pound to 18 cents a pound, and Jewish women declared a kosher meat boycott. And for butchers who didn't obey their boycott, they smashed their windows, they took the meat, they threw it on the street, they doused it with kerosene, and sometimes they set it aflame because they weren't going to do anything that would jeopardize the pennies that they needed to sustain their families. Um, but they also took the, to the streets standing on soapboxes, um, urging their husbands and their um, sons and their brothers to vote for women's suffrage. And they also took to the streets, they lined um, the streets outside of the first birth control clinic that Margaret Sanger established before she got arrested for doing it in Brownsville, Brooklyn in the 19-teens. So they were, in, they were out in the streets in a very public way a lot. Well, that brings me to the labor movement. Um, many young Jewish women worked in the garment industry. Um, they went out and worked um, and um, got swept up in a, a, a monumental shift in the rights or the struggle for rights for workers. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you could talk about that and uh, the strikes in the, in the garment industry. Um, and if you could tie in the Triangle Fire, which right. was a catalyst for much of this. Right. The, the Jews had been organizing strikes to improve working conditions in the garment industry where they were heavily concentrated, especially in New York, but also in Philadelphia, Cleveland, and other cities. And they'd been doing that as, as early as the 1880s and the 1890s. Um, someone uh, actually quips at one point that there always seems to be a strike on the east side somewhere. But the first really successful general strike on the Lower East Side of New York was the 1909 shirtwaist makers strike. And the men who were in charge of the labor unions were very suspicious of women. They didn't expect that women could organize and sustain a strike. They started the strike with an almost bankrupt um, strike fund. And they were they 
always felt that women, the women who were working in the factories and in the sweatshops were by and large single women. And they were going to get married and they were going to leave. Um, now, you can carry your politics even into marriage, and many of them also carried their sewing machines into their kitchens and continued to work, but they weren't working under some foreman's thumb. And the women of the, the shirtwaist makers braved thugs and um, terrorism from the police and arrests and workhouse sentencing, and they, they sustained a um, several months long strike that um, was settled in many shops successfully, um, some of the larger ones not as successfully, and it sparked a decade of labor unrest that ultimately saw by the by the end of World War One the garment industry as the best organized labor unions in the United States. Um, the other factor that you mentioned that added fuel to the fire was the horrific 1911 March of 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire when um, 141 I think um, workers were um, were consumed in the flames on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Ash Building in New York um, because there were no, the fire exits were locked, there were the, there were no sprinklers, the safe, the escape ladders uh, crushed to the street, um, people jumped out of windows, it was um, uh, for almost a century the worst, the most horrific um, industrial uh, disaster in the United States. Well, you have millions, hundreds of thousands of women who are coming in. I, I, I couldn't uh, uh, have this uh, interview with you today on this podcast without mentioning my mother. And one of my mother's uh, favorite figures, my mother was an immigrant brought here as a child, but saw herself as, a, as a, a, an immigrant young woman uh, being raised in, in Maine. Um, she was a, a big fan of Mary Anton. Tell us about Mary Anton and the story that she told. What, what I love is that your mother knew Mary Anton's memoir. The Promised Land, and that she admired her. I I read Mary Anton for the first time in my first quarter in graduate school, and I have been enamored with her history and her story ever, ever since. Um, she was 30 years old in 1912 when she published the memoir The Promised Land. The Promised Land she was not referring to was not Palestine at that point. She was referring to America. Um, as a teenager, she had published an account of the letters she wrote of how she journeyed from Polotsk um, in Eastern Europe in the Russian Empire to Boston. And Mary Anton it became the quintessential immigrant, the, the kind of rags to riches story. She um, she came to America, uh, a relative took them to a grand palace, turned out to be a department store, bought them American clothes, and the day that she entered public school, she, and she said it was as if her father took possession of America. She was a, a wonderful student. She vaulted through grammar school. She, already in her first year, her poetry was getting published in um, magazines. And she went on to become the great champion of the immigrant experience. And her, her story is very complicated because she um, married a, prof uh, a non-Jewish professor at Columbia University. They had one child, and she moved to New York, and she got to know people like President Theodore Roosevelt. And he actually said that he became an advocate of women's suffrage because of Mary Anton. She wrote him a letter saying, but I'm not in favor of women's suffrage. And he had to retract that. You, you write in the book, um, there was a change in the way Jewish immigrant women dressed 
uh, losing their, their head coverings, buying dresses and other clothes in the department store. Uh, how did that relate to assimilation, which was taking place anyway, as we move from the immigrant period, from the 1920s, let's say mid-1920s, which is more or less when it, when it stopped, um, as, we, as we are at that point and then we're up to that point and then move on, how uh, was assimilation affecting the way women um, not only dressed, but, but how they, they were acting? I always prefer to use the term acculturation. I, assimilation means kind of complete abandonment of one's former identity. And especially when you're talking about dress, those are kind of like preliminary steps. So when I, 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 I talk in the book, but also when I talk in public lectures, show this photo of my great-grandmother from around 1910. She's wearing scheidel. She refused to take off her wig. So many other women would have done that, would have taken off their wigs. And dress is a form of acculturating and blending into America, but it doesn't mean that everything else has changed. And what we see in terms of Jewish women is we see their taking on various aspects of American life, becoming a part of American society. Yet because they were Jewish, even if they said Jewishness didn't matter to them, because they were Jewish, I argue that Jewish women have always remained apart from American society as well. So as we move into the 1940s, and we're going, really, this is a, uh, a very quick tour. Right. It was a book. big sweep. <laughs> it was a big sweep. There's a lot of years and a lot of history, but we, we want to touch as many points as we can. What was the, if we talk about acculturation and yet identity, because identity as, is, is part of that. So what was the nationwide impact of the radio program, um, the Goldbergs, the rise uh. of the Goldbergs? Um, were Americans being introduced to Jews for the first time? And, and what did that mean? See, you know, when I think of the Goldbergs, it's a little bit also like what I, what I think about the popularity of Fiddler on the Roof, that they're family stories. And you probably know this, that Fiddler on the Roof is super popular, like in, 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 in Sweden and in Japan. They, they're convinced that it's their story, right? You know, I just saw it in Yiddish, and Yiddish is definitely not their story. Um, and it's the same thing with the, the rise of the Goldbergs, the most popular radio show in the 1930s becomes a television show. And my Molly Goldberg, who speaks, of, of course, she's the creation of this great um, uh, genius, Gertrude Berg, but she speaks with malapropisms, so her English is always accented, and but her concerns are for her children and how they should grow up and what they should be, and Americans love this, but she also introduced them to the Jewish world. She brought a rabbi on screen at one point, um, or, or maybe on, on radio, uh, she raised issues around, you know, during when Hitler was coming to power, it bled into the scripts. There's a scene that I've seen um, from the TV show where she's praying in a woman's balcony. So they got a little bit of a glimpse of also Jewishness through that. But most of the fan mail is not about Jewish things. It's about, this is my story, me and my children. Although I must say, when it, when it went to the screen, when it went to TV, and that's where I picked it up, yeah. when I was a little boy, and my parents watched uh, the show uh, every week and I think there was a, a mixture of identification <laughs> with with the family and also pride in the fact that this program about Jews about them 
because it's really about them, right. about my parents and all the others in the Jewish community, was in this great country of ours being broadcast, you know, yeah. whatever night it was of the week for all Americans to see. And I think they took a lot of pride in that. I, I agree. For Jews, definitely. Um, now, anti-Semitism, 1930s, Father Coughlin, Gerald L.K. Smith, uh, uh, as we moved, and then Hitler and the, the, the uh, rise of, uh, of, of Nazism, uh, and then ultimately the, the Shoah. Um, how were American Jewish women dealing with the issue of anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism intruded into their lives in so many ways. Sometimes it was the kind of intrusion um, that one letter that I cite, a woman writes a letter about how it affected her family. Her daughter wanted a vacation with a friend. The hotel wrote, you're not going to find the kind of people you want to be with here. Um, this is in the days when hotels could exclude Jews. Her son wanted to be an engineer. Back then in the 1930s, 1940s, nobody would hire a Jewish engineer. So anti-Semitism very often came into the home through their children. Um, they weren't out in the workforce in the same way, encountering it the way their husbands might have been, um, where you know they might do business with somebody but never anything happening after 5 o'clock, for example. And then, of course, Jewish women take a very strong stand against anti-Semitism. Um, they picketed uh, in, in the 1930s, they picketed stores that were selling German-made products as a way of protesting um, uh, Nazi Nazi persecution of the Jews. But they also they stood outside of churches. Imagine this takes a lot of courage to stand outside of a church on a Sunday morning and say, "Don't believe everything Father Coughlin is saying." You know, to try and educate their neighbors. Unfortunately, the things that they were doing back then are things Jewish women and Jewish men are still doing today. Unfortunately, so, and that's. Very much, uh, very much on, on all of our agendas. Um, we've got to move now quickly, and, and again, um, Pam, you'll have to come back, and we'll have to do another round uh, with all of the things that you have in the book. Uh, but we can't uh, end uh, the podcast without talking about uh, the women's movement in this country and the role that Jews played in it. Right. It's, it's astonishing when we see the number of Jewish women who were in the forefront of American feminism. I'm not talking about Jewish religious feminism. Of course, they were in the forefront of that. I'm talking about women like Betty Friedan, Bella Abzug, Heather Booth, the activist who created the um, uh, abortion referral service when she was a student at the University of Chicago that helped about 10,000 women get um, relatively safe abortions before abortion became legal in the United States. It was, it was actually hard for me to limit the number that I could talk about because Jewish women were making their mark in the feminist movement in whatever arena they were active in. For example, we have a Women's History Month today in the United States. We have that because a, an Austrian Jewish refugee named Gerda Lerner came to the United States, got a PhD in history, decided to study women's history, and petitioned the United States government to create a Women's History Week. So a, a, a Jew in America, a Jewish woman in America, created something that impacts us down into the 21st century and that helps to spread knowledge about the history of women, American women. But to bring it current, um, now, you know, the, the issues that we've had recently uh, in terms of um, the 
Women's March and um, Jewish women who are Zionists who are looking to to be part of the broader movement, but who are now being shunted aside. How do you how do you see that? What I what I did was to talk about the very same problem, only back in the decade between 1975 and 1985. So what we don't remember is that between 1975 and 1985, the United Nations declared the Decade of Women. They held these international conferences. I'm sure B'nai B'rith was represented at them. These international conferences of various places and the anti-Semitism on display at those conferences was terrifying. To, to women, people, people, women who came back from there reported hearing things like the only good Jew is a dead Jew. They heard back then the same kind of conflation that we hear today about Israel and anti-Zionism anti is not the same as anti-Semitism, but of course it was. And what, I, what I'm able to do is to show that this um, difficult politics on the left is not new. Before we uh, close, um, I have to talk about a couple of iconic figures okay. uh, that you write about. Uh, one would be Emma Lazarus, and the other would be uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. Emma Lazarus is actually one of the women that I write about who lived her life on such a large canvas that she left an imprint on American Jews and American history. And of course, her great poem, The New Colossus and the Base of the Statue of Liberty, has welcomed the huddled masses yearning to breathe free to America ever since it was placed there um, at the end of the 19th century. And of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, long before she was RBG, the icon or notorious RBG, um, was a staunch advocate for using the law to change the inequities that existed in in our, in a gender-based society and she and her, her work um, through the American Civil Liberties Union and the women's task force there she I mean that that's what eventually propelled her onto the Supreme Court so they are um, Lazarus not but Ginsburg is just an example of another one of that group of women who took her own sphere of expertise to advance equity for all American women. What does the future hold? It's so hard to know. I, historians always get asked this, and um, a really smart historian will say that she doesn't know anything about the future. We only know something about the past. But what I do think that it holds is that there will be new chapters written into this history. What seems very clear to me is that the tremendous revolution that occurred in American life in the opportunities open to women continue today. And in fact, the Me Too movement and the attention that has gotten is a kind of new expression of that, a continuation. Um, I write, for example, in the book about women who experienced sexual harassment before the term was even invented. The term was invented in the 1970s. So I don't know what the next the next step will be, but I'm very hopeful that we will continue to see progress and change. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Please visit our website, benebrith.org. Like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Dr. Pamela Nadell, I'm Dan Mariashin. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.